God's got some cool stuff to say today. Uh, uh, we start a new series. Oh, you see the Kindles that are up. Everybody's life is a story, right? There's kind of like the chapter one, the prologue kind of thing, and the epilogue, what happens at the end. Story is, is just a key part of being alive. Um, you know, from the, from the beginning of history, from the time in the Garden of Eden, story was important. God began to tell this story through Adam and Eve. And, and we can read about the stories from Adam and Eve. Uh, the, God's interaction with people. Over, uh, over the last several years, there's been a key part in our culture of intersecting story with where we live right now. And it's uh, TED Talks, right? Anybody watched a TED Talk before? A few of you, uh, maybe some. TED Talks are 15 or 20 minute episodes. Uh, somebody gets up and tells a story that lasts 15 or 20 minutes. It may be about something in their industry. It may be about uh, something that happened to them in their past. And they use that story to try and communicate a truth that their goal is that society will change because of stories, which is kind of a neat thing. Ted, Ted Talk says this, Telling stories is the thing that makes us human. Stories ignite our imagination. They let us leap over cultural walls and cross barriers of time. Stories bring us to other worlds and let us explore other lives. And yet, at the same time, give us a better understanding of our own time, place, and emotion. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about it before, but Jesus was a master storyteller. Jesus used story all the time to communicate God's truth to a world in a way that people could understand it. At, at one point in time, Jesus just told story after story after story after story to try and communicate truth to the crowd he was teaching that day. Jesus used stories to communicate a point. Stories that were designed to cut into people's hearts. Stories that were designed to shed light in dark places to help people understand things about themselves that they didn't understand before. As we start this new series, it starts with this question, what's in a story? What's the story all about? Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven different parables that Jesus told. And, and uh, in each parable, we're, going to just, uh, we're just going to take a look and see what was that truth that Jesus was trying to teach. Uh, parables, I, uh, parables are stories about things on earth that teach a heavenly truth. It helps to know that because we don't talk about parables all that much except in the context of Jesus' teaching. Parables were earthly stories with heavenly meanings. When I was a kid growing up in church, I can remember watching a film strip that said, Parables from Nature, Earthly Stories with Heavenly Meanings. Uh, it was a cool thing, that the parables of Jesus. Um, Sam Storms wrote that parables were comparisons drawn from scenery and events of everyday life designed to communicate a spiritual principle or spiritual truth. I like that. Have you ever wondered why Jesus taught in parables? Why is it that, that probably of all of Jesus' teaching, we think about the parables more than anything else? Part of it was, it was a common practice in the first century because there, wasn't, there weren't printing presses, right? Um, teachers taught orally. There was um, written teaching, but the paper was really expensive. The ink was expensive. And so that kind of training that came from scrolls, from, from writing, 
uh, it didn't happen a lot. Most of the teaching that took place was as people walked and talked, the teachers would teach, and they would use stories to expose truth. It was a popular teaching. Jesus used parables too to reveal truth, to just let truth show itself because Jesus could say things in parables. He could say things that, were, that really, if he had just outright said them, would be very offensive. They would have been hard to hear and hard for his listeners to grasp. But when he told it in a parable, when he told a story, all of a sudden the hearer had to kind of work through that process, think about what it was that he was saying, and, and then try and make sense of how that applied to his life. The message was still equally as powerful, but it wasn't quite as in your face as if Jesus had just told it by himself. Jesus told parables to make people think. What I just described, when you hear a story, and you know that that story is there designed to teach a truth, your brain starts spinning, doesn't it? It's no longer in neutral. You're all the time thinking, okay, what's he really trying to say with that story? How's that fit in? And that was the case for Jesus. And, um, and so Jesus told parables to, to make people think, to reveal truth, to help people remember. When Jesus talked about one of the parables that we're going to look at, when he talked about a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, his audience knew exactly what he was talking about. That was a walk that they took all the time. So there was a picture there, and every time after that, when they saw that picture, when they encountered that time in life, they would think back to what Jesus had taught. Matthew 13 says something really interesting too. It says that Jesus taught in parables to, to hide truth from certain people. There were religious leaders who looked religious on the outside. They looked great. But they didn't really get it at all. And Jesus taught, taught in parables so that they wouldn't get it. So that that truth would be hidden from them, it says in Matthew 13. But that the people whose hearts were right, who really understood who God was, that they would hear those par parables, they would begin to make application, and that would make sense to them. Jesus, uh, as we lead up into today's message, Jesus is in the first year of his ministry. Okay, he's, uh, he's, he's begun to heal people, he's done miracles, he's turned the water into wine, he's begun to teach, and all of a sudden on the hillside in, Judea, in, in Galilee, there are all these people that come to hear Jesus teach. And Matthew records what we have as the, the longest um, recording of Jesus' um, messages, Jesus' teaching of any place in Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 what we call the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught from the hillside in Galilee, looking over the Sea of Galilee. In that message, Jesus taught revolutionary stuff. Jesus had been teaching, people have been thinking, oh, this is a really good rabbi, maybe, maybe he's the Messiah. But in this message, Jesus turned everything upside down because he began to teach things that didn't make sense to his hearers. It was, it was counterculture. It, was, it really was revolutionary. Jesus starts with the Beatitudes and, and teaches about heart stuff. And then he says, your relationship with God is not something to be hidden. Your relationship with God is not something that's private. It impacts every aspect of your life. He said, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. You don't light a lamp and hide it under a bushel, hide it under a barrel. Your relationship with God impacts every aspect of your life. And then Jesus took on the religious leaders in an incredible way. He, he actually went after them and he, and, and he began to say, you've heard it said this way, but I'm telling you this is what it's really all about. 
Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you, don't get angry with your brother. That was, that was revolutionary. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But here's what I say. Don't even look at a woman with lust. Don't think of her in that way. Because your heart is what matters. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't divorce. Because Moses had said it was okay to divorce. And in that culture, Jewish men could divorce women for almost any reason that they wanted. It was a very common thing. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't divorce. I'm telling you this, you don't understand at all the implications of what happens when you divorce. The damage that that does. It was, it was revolutionary, the things that Jesus began to teach. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Retribution is okay. Getting back. I tell you, when somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. When a soldier conscripts you and asks you to carry their stuff for a mile, carry it two miles instead. Go beyond that. Jesus said, don't seek revenge. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, don't swear falsely. I'm telling you, don't even swear. Let your word be true and honest. Um, let it be consistent all the time. Jesus said, don't do your spiritual good deeds. Don't do things, religious things for other people to notice. Don't fast and, and, and have your face be all drawn and have people say, oh man, he's really angry or upset or whatever. He must be fasting because he's so spiritual. Don't don't give your money to the poor in front of everybody and make a big deal of it. Jesus said, do that stuff in private. That's an expression of what's going on in your heart. Jesus, in that Sermon on the Mount, began to teach, this is what it looks like to pray. It's not this rote prayer that you've memorized. Instead, it's talking to God like you're talking to your father. Letting him know about your needs. Letting him know about the struggles that you have. It was countercultural to his audience. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth because they're going to fade away. Store up treasures in heaven. Don't be anxious about all the stuff of life. God's going to take care of that for you. Instead, seek God's kingdom. If you seek God's kingdom, everything's going to fall into place. Everything's going to be okay. Jesus said, treat others the way that you want to be treated. And he comes down to the end of that message. For three chapters, Matthew tells us what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Go ahead and look at that. and Feel free to look at that now. Look at it later, but just kind of scroll through that. Jesus finishes this message that is, that is revolutionary in terms of what he's teaching. And his conclusion is this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those people who have been obeying the law on the outside, but they don't have their heart right. Not everybody's going to enter the kingdom of heaven who recognizes me, who, who says, Lord, Lord. And, and Jesus says, the people are going to say, wait a second. We did miracles in your name. We did fantastic stuff. We, we cast out demons in your name. We proclaimed the truth of God in your name. And Jesus said, I'm going to say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you cursed. Do you understand the climax of his message? It was designed to cut right to the heart of people. 
When he says those words in verse 21, 22, and 23, people don't know what to do. And Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with this incredible story. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Just look at it. Uh, there's Bibles on the backs of the, uh, the pews in front of you. You want to take those, you've got an electronic device, you want to go to version. I'm reading out of the ESV, the, the English Standard Version today. Jesus then tells this story. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on the house. But the house didn't fall because it was founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine that I've just been telling you and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, the beat against the house, and, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Just to put that parable in your mind, I want you to take a look on screen and see it see it visually lived out. I love it. Um, parables, I, I mentioned a little bit ago, are designed to teach one truth. One truth. But there are some things, I think, as we look at that parable that Jesus told, that help us understand that truth very, very completely and fully. The first, the first aspect of that, just as we, as we think about it, recognize that everyone is building something. Everyone is building something all of the time. With the choices that we make on a daily basis, we're building a structure. With the thoughts that we think, with the way that we treat other people, we're building 
a house, with the things that entertain us, the activities that we're involved in. We're constantly building a house. Everyone is building something. There was something that was kind of subtle in that video, but I, th- I think it's, it's pretty cool. Did you notice that both houses looked exactly the same? On the outside, your house can look great, but you, your foundation um, not, be, not be solid. On the outside, your house can look good, but inside, everything can begin to be crumbling. Um, think about your own life. It's easy to look good on the outside and not to be there internally. It looks like you're doing the right things. It looks like you love God. It looks like you're treating people right. You go to church every Sunday. You're involved in a life group. Maybe you even go to Bible study fellowship. You've got an accountability partner. You've got a spiritual mentor. Maybe you even have somebody that you mentor spiritually. But in your heart, there's not anything there. You're doing it for show. You're doing it for the respect of others. Maybe you're doing it because that's the way that you're raised. Maybe you're doing it because you've adopted a Christian worldview. Not because you love God. Not because you have a relationship with Him. Your house may look identical. Identical to people who are moving towards a life fully devoted to Jesus on the outside. But in reality, you're moving to a life fully devoted to something or someone else. Everyone is building something one day at a time. And everyone will experience storms. When Jesus told the story, recognize that the, that the storm came and, it, and the wise man wasn't protected from the storm, was he? The storms came to both the wise and the foolish man. The scripture tells us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Know this. The house that you're building with your life is going to be tested by storms. It's going to happen. And your storms are not unique. I have conversations with people all the time who who say, you don't understand what I've gone through. You've never experienced this or this or this. And essentially what they're saying is, my my storm's different than yours. I think that there are basically three kinds of storms for all of us that we experience. Uh, The first storm is a storm that comes as a result of of a devastating loss. Maybe you lose your job. All of a sudden your life falls apart. Maybe you, you something happens financially and everything that you've worked for, everything that you've planned on, everything that you've set your retirement goals for, in an instant it's gone. Anybody say 2008? Um, you know, everything changes. There's this sense of devastating loss. That loss may come as a result of relationships. It may be that someone that you love deeply dies. It may be that you have a broken relationship with someone that you've loved and trusted for a long time. That devastating loss is the storm that, that exposes what your foundation is made of. Everyone will experience this storm. Sometimes, sometimes we can see the storms coming, right? If you think about Katrina 10 years ago, for the two or three days before that, the, weather, the weatherman said, get out of New Orleans. There's this tropical storm, this hurricane that's... that's 
aiming right for New Orleans. Get out of New Orleans. Sometimes there's advance warning, but sometimes, sometimes storms come up in an instant and there's no preparation. When the storms come, they will expose your foundation. Storms may come from personal loss. Maybe, maybe, maybe that devastating loss is your, is your physical health. Your body just doesn't work the way that it used to anymore. Maybe the, a disease impacts you. Loss. There's a different kind of storm, though, that comes. And it's a storm that, that, that really I'd, I would describe as a storm of dissatisfaction. It's the storm, it's the picture of the storm for me is, you know, when there's that soft, gentle rain that happens and you think, oh, this is great. And you walk out in the umbrella and you kick the puddles and it's cool. But that storm starts on Tuesday afternoon and it goes all Tuesday night. Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, Thursday. It goes into Friday. And, and that, that, that storm that just stays there and there's this sense of dissatisfaction. I, I don't know. I don't know what the, that storm may look like in your life. It may be that it's dissatisfaction with where you are geographically. That you think, is there any place else I could live besides mid-Michigan? You know? Um, that's not me for, for whatever it's worth. We love it here. But m maybe you're saying, oh, I don't want to live in mid-Michigan. I want to live in the UP. First service, everybody said, no, don't want to live there. Maybe it's Miami. How's that? Uh, Some place like that. Maybe it's a city like Chicago or New York or California, whatever. You're dissatisfied with where you are geographically. Maybe you're dissatisfied with where you are relationally. That you think, this is not the life I signed up for. I'm single and I don't want to be. God, bring me someone to share my life with. And that dissatisfaction with your relational shape is a storm that just beats on your house daily. There's another kind of storm that happens too. It's a storm of wealth and affluence. Sometimes there's so much good in our lives that that, that just beats on our house in a different kind of way. All of a sudden we have resources that we never expected to have. Uh, a week ago, Deb and I went to see Fiddler on the Roof. L love Fiddler on the Roof. Any Fiddler on the Roof fans? Just, just great. And, and you know, there's um, one of the characters in Fiddler on the Roof is this guy named Perchik. That, uh, he's a teacher. He's kind of a revolutionary that's there. And he wants to turn the world upside down and, and he ends up uh, teaching Tevye's kids. And in this conversation that Perchik has with Tevye, um, Perchik says, uh, he says, Money is the world's curse. And Tevye looks up at God and says, May God smite me with that curse. <laughs> Pause happens, then he says, And may I never recover. Uh, you know, there's this sense, we all want that, that experience, right? We all want more. We want to have more. And yet sometimes that's a storm in our life that all of a sudden... It creates all these things that are beating on our house to see what it's made of. You will face storms, ultimately for all of us. There's a storm that will come when we die, where at that storm we will ultimately face God at judgment. Scripture says it's appointed to man once to die and then to face judgment. We will all face that storm and our house will be examined at that point in time. We will face storms. We'll face multiple ones. 
They will keep coming in our lives because we live in a broken world. In a world that's full of trouble. When those storms come, they will expose the strength of the foundation of our house. I learned this week that the foundation is the key to a strong house. Uh, I read this, a foundation footer is perhaps one of the most critical aspects of the house. It's almost always the first building element that contacts the earth or soil that the house rests upon. The primary purpose of the footer is to spread out the weight of the structure across a larger footprint than the foundation would if it was in direct contact with the earth. Sometimes concrete footers are 20 inches or 24 or 30 inches wide and at least 8 inches thick. More often than not, you'll see 10 inch wide footers. The average foundation, the cement block, is only 8 inches wide. And that 8 inch block rests on that 10 inch footer. When you think about the total weight that's involved in any house of people's possessions, it's tens of thousands of pounds. And when you add the building construction weight, um, if there weren't footers, the walls of the house would slice into the ground like knives through butter. The pressure that would be placed on those walls would drive them lower. But a footer, because it's wider than a foundation wall, displaces the weight over a much larger area. A footer creates a nice level surface for the foundation contractor to set his forms. In some cases, there's a pier that goes um, underneath the footer. A pier can be of wood, it can be of concrete, it can be of steel. And basically what it's like is a table leg that goes through bad soil down until it contacts rock. And it rests with the footer on top of it. So that the footer, while it doesn't have contact with the rock, rests on that pier and is stabilized. I've got a, a number of people I know that help build houses. My brother-in-law is a house builder. And I, I talked to him this week and said... Steve, do you have any great stories about, uh, about foundations as you were building houses? He said, yeah, I got, I got this story. He said, I was building this house in Fairborn, Ohio. Fairborn, Ohio is a suburb of Dayton. He said, I was building this house in Fairborn, and we were digging out the ground to lay the foundation, and we discovered that on this piece of property there was quicksand. So we did what any good builder does at that point in time. We decided it was time for lunch. <laughs> So they went off, went to lunch, came back to the building site, and when they got back to the building site, the bulldozer had been swallowed up by the quicksand. They thought the bulldozer had been stolen. In reality, the quicksand had enveloped the bulldozer completely. Steve said, it was not a good day. Uh, because they had to then extricate the bulldozer, and then the building, uh, the, the building uh, supervisor, the, the um, licensing people, said you've got to move the location of the house from that location to another part of the property, and you've got to build a foundation that's twice as large as you had originally intended because of the quicksand. I talked to Brian Erickson, who's, uh, who's a part of North Point, who does remodel work. And I said, yeah, got any good stories about foundations? He said, yeah, I tore up a floor once and found underneath the floor the foundation of the house. The foundation was built on roofing shingles. <laughs> roofing shingles. When the storm comes, it will expose the strength or the weakness of the foundation. A strong foundation, Jesus says comes from putting the words of Jesus 
into practice. A weak foundation comes from hearing the words of Jesus and not doing anything with them. A foundation that will withstand the storms of life is built one decision at a time by doing what Jesus asks. Let me say that again. A foundation that will withstand the storms is built one decision at a time by doing what Jesus asks. James said in chapter 1, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away, and at once he forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in what he does. Can you, anybody ever done this before? You get all set, all dressed in the morning, you go and look in the mirror, comb your hair when you have hair, uh, you, you know, go through that process, make sure you're looking great, you do some other stuff, you walk to the door and you think, did I do my hair? Am I in good shape? Did I brush my teeth? Because while you looked in the mirror for an instant, you didn't really pay any attention to it. And you have to go back and check again. James says, that's what it's like to have faith without actions. Faith with actions is looking in the mirror, really studying what's there, and putting that into practice. Um, it's interesting that right out of that passage at the end of, of James chapter 1, uh, James says that, that a person who doesn't bridle his tongue is missing the boat completely. And then he says, pure and undefiled religion is this. You want to know what pure and undefiled, perfect religion is this? It's taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. It's putting your faith into action. Jesus said, the foundation, the solid foundation comes from putting into practice my words. Coming to church is not enough. Being a part of a life group is not enough. Reading or hearing God's word is not enough. Being convicted of sin, being convicted of God's truth in your life is not enough. Putting the teaching of Jesus into practice is what matters. That's, that's the thing that matters in life. You know, um, all over the country today, guys like me will get up and talk, and, and they'll talk to people as they leave, and people after the message will say, oh man, great message, Pastor. Oh, that was, that was great. Oh, I, I really liked what you had. That, that just really spoke to me. Oh, I love that story, that illustration. Oh, that makes great sense. You know what I want to really hear when I'm done speaking? I want to hear people say, with God's help, I've got to make change in my life as a result of what you said today. With God's help, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to rebuild what's going on inside me. I've got to make some changes. How do you know if your foundation is solid or if it's sand? Let me, let me just give you some things. You know that you're on a weak foundation, on a sandy foundation, if you have trouble yielding to Christ. When you hear scripture, when you hear God speak to you and you say, eh, I don't want to do that. When you say, I know the Bible says that, I'm not doing it. That's a good sign that you're building on sand. 
if, um, if you've got all kinds of external religious activity, you're doing all the right stuff, but there's nothing going on inside, no internal motivation, no drive because of your love for Christ, your foundation's probably sand. If guilt or fear are your main motivators spiritually, man, I don't want to go to hell. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to go to hell. Or, man, I will feel so guilty if I do. If that's your main motivator for doing things for God, that's a, that's a weak foundation. It's sand. If you have this sense of self-righteousness, if you puff your chest up and say, oh man, I've done this and this and this, God's got to say to me, oh, great job. If we have this sense that if we do all the right stuff, God will accept us that sense of self-righteousness, of pride. It's a sign that our foundation is sand. Scripture says if you love the world, if you don't love your brother, if you've got broken relationships in your life, if you love pleasure more than you love forsaking pleasure, your foundation's probably sand. Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, I didn't know you. They'll say, didn't we do all this great religious stuff? And Jesus will say, I don't know you. Depart from me. How do you know if a husband loves their wife? It's by what he does, right? That's what demonstrates love. I grew up in a, in a great home. My mom and dad loved each other. They were married 61 years before my mom died. I, I think, I, I was trying to think back, I think probably every day, every day growing up, I heard my dad tell my mom that he loved her and she loved, she would respond back to him at least twice a day. When dad left for work in the morning, when dad got home, they always said, I love you. I love you. They talked about that, but what the reason that I know that they loved each other was not because they did that in the morning and at night. It was by the way that they treated each other. It was that love demonstrated on a daily basis. When we moved back to Ohio in 2008 and we were only about 40 minutes from my mom and dad's, I would go up there a lot. My mom had been diagnosed two years earlier with Alzheimer's. And I saw my dad's demonstration of his love for my mom in a completely new context. My dad would help my mom walk. My dad would feed my mom. My dad would physically help my mom go to the bathroom, help her take a shower. You know what? They still said that they loved each other. But my dad's actions demonstrated in a, in a way that I treasure now after my mom's death. I treasure seeing that lived out in that way. Let me, uh, let me, let me just, I'm, I'm heading into the landing pattern, okay? Uh, into the message. Um, you, may be, you may be right now thinking, you know, my foundation's not really very solid. If that's, if that's where you are, Man, there's incredible hope in this message because you can build a new foundation and a new house. You can make the decision today to allow Jesus to come in and take control of your life, to give up your will and to quit trying to build it yourself and let him build it, to let him have your heart.
But in order to do that, you've got to do one thing. You've got to blow up the old structure. You've got to destroy that old foundation. You've got to build those footers deep. You've got to build into the rock so that that house doesn't just look good on the outside, so that that house will withstand the storms. Parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They're, they're things that, we, that are normal and natural to us that we see that communicate a spiritual truth. We can all picture in our minds houses that we've seen crumble and houses that we've seen stand because of their strong foundation. Here's the meaning of the parable. It's a one truth parable. Being exposed to the teaching of Jesus has no value if it doesn't result in action. Being exposed to the teachings of Jesus has no value if it doesn't result in action. Eric Little, the Olympian racer, said, You will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. Ed Cole said, A ton of prayer will not produce what an ounce of obedience will. Oswald Chambers said, The golden rule for understanding in spiritual matters is not intellect, but obedience. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, I think the crowd was quiet. Matthew gives a description of what happened. But again, you've got to understand how revolutionary his teaching was. Jesus took on in full force what the religious leaders had taught for years and years and years, that it was all about the externals, about pleasing God by, by outward appearance. And Jesus said, it's all about your heart. It's not about the applications that other people make. It's about your heart. Letting God's word dive into your heart and reshape the way that you live. Reshape the actions that you take. And here's what Matthew said in verse 28. He said, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, not as the religious leaders. The call for us is to put into practice what Jesus taught. It's to live it out on a daily basis, not to just simply come to church, not to go through the motions, but to do what Jesus calls us to do. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now and are so aware of what we've been building. God, we come questioning ourselves on so many levels. Lord, we know that we, there's not anything that we can do to earn our way into your presence. But God, we want to live out, we, we want to live out what Jesus taught. God, we want fresh, soft hearts. We want hearts that drive us to action. Hearts that overflow into every aspect of our lives. Help us, Lord. Fill us in a fresh way with your presence, with your Holy Spirit. Open our ears, God. Unstop them so that we can hear you speak. 
so that we can follow, so that we can obey, so that we can put into practice your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.